this is going to be one of the weirdest angles of a transition. Uh, and even before the boiler played, uh, Twitter handle and content warnings and everything. Uh, but not before saying, I hope that this finds you well and safely quarantined. And it is 8.39 p.m. Uh, 18th, April, Saturday. Uh, day plus one of a month of quarantine. Uh and today I've been getting some marvelous laughs from having found that while I could not find the live action cartoon movie Black Dynamite, which is everything, uh, except that there was a show on Adult Swim that ran for two seasons, and uh, I will feature Adam uh, first thing, even before the story, because The Lost World is outstanding. Uh, but I have been laughing so much the first season of this. If you aren't down for the humor, it's... You know, an animated show on Adult Swim in the same... Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out who the... Uh, or I need to look up who the animator is because it reminds me of the Boondocks or another anime series. I haven't watched as much anime, but I have a friend who is very discerning in it and... Uh, that's not what this podcast is about. My goal, aside of uh, having a place that I'm, you know, talking at least to someone, at least to my future self, and probably my parents are kindly listening, and possibly you from wherever this finds you, uh, that I am audiobooking public domain fiction uh, and literature that now that everybody has time to read, uh, I'm linking as well as Adult Swim, uh, Dark Comedy, Black Exploitation, uh, you know, uh, Black Dynamite, as well as linking that, I am going to have a uh, uh, link to The Lost World, the original novel from 1912. A lot of people think, just offhandedly, would think that it's a Jules Verne story, if you're familiar with Verne. Uh, and, you know, fantastic adventure stories. But this one is Conan Doyle, uh, <clears throat> the guy who did Sherlock Holmes and wrote so many other things that people don't know. But I'm reading this on Project Gutenberg. You can get it through there on a Kindle format uh, if you like. And... Uh, the stories are marvelous. I'm bringing attention to this and a few other 
great works of literature and fantasy. Uh, and I'm open to suggestions. So as well as the usual reasons to reach out, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at time of posting. <clears throat> and if you are interested in getting amplification for something else, I would love to help uh, do that for other fiction as well as the stuff that uh, I know. Which weirdly, uh, bizarrely, brings me back to Black Dynamite because I had already been planning to get to Professor Challenger and the Lost World. Uh, already been having that on my docket as I'm going through Captain Sharky and Brigadier Gerard and the other, you know, marvelous Conan Doyle characters that nobody knows because they obsessed, everybody obsessed rightly over Sherlock Holmes, but it's a bizarre oversight of the man's, like the bulk of the works uh, of a great, great writer who, uh, I got it into my head at some point to look into what else he wrote and I cannot recommend highly enough and I'm audiobooking. This actually would probably be the first uh, uh, thing of his that I'm reading that somebody else would have audiobooked at some point, but nobody, I'm sure, uh, has done Captain Sharky. Uh, and one reason for that that also needs to be part of the boilerplate introduction to these podcasts I'm going to be reading stuff that was written by someone with a Victorian mindset in the case of this episode. And unless there were any direct racial epithets that we run into, I'm, I'm just reading Conan Doyle's very imaginative characters and peoples. And uh, yeah, he's a great storyteller who is born in and shaped by a different time. And in an episode of Black Dynamite uh, with a obvious knockoff of uh, a beloved older film, uh, Honky Kong, that uh, of all fucking things, they've just gone over to the land before time, essentially, the same premise as The Lost World. About halfway through uh, the episode, they go to uh, what uh, maybe is meant as Skull Island from the first movie, but uh, I already had The Lost World on the mind, and this is the exact premise. So that being said, as some kind of preamble, it's about eight minutes right now. So uh, future Adam, if you wanna just cut to the start of the actual story for a future version of this, uh, you can cut it at eight minutes.
Chapter 3 He is a perfectly impossible person. My friend's fear or hope was not destined to be realized. Uh, and also, uh, one thing, Gutenberg lets you link uh, to chapters. So I'm actually going to be, if you look in the podcast uh, essay, you'll find the link to this chapter and can read that and the rest of the book without the rambling and sidebars. But if you want to stick around, my friend's fear or hope was not destined to be realized. Uh, there are two earlier chapters, but Challenger is just the most fun character. So here we go. When I called on Wednesday, there was a letter with the West Kensington postmark upon it, and my name scrawled across the envelope in a handwriting which looked like a barbed wire railing. The contents were as follows. Enmore Park, W. Sir, I have duly received your note in which you claim to endorse my views, although I am not aware that they are dependent upon endorsement either from you or anyone else. You have ventured to use the word speculation with regard to my statement upon the subject of Darwinism, and I would call your attention to the fact that such a word in such a connection is offensive to a degree. The context convinces me, however, that you have sinned rather through ignorance and tactlessness than through malice, so I'm content to pass the matter by. You quote an isolated sentence from my lecture and appear to have some difficulty in understanding it. I should have thought that only a subhuman intelligence could have... This is why the boilerplate statement. Subhuman intelligence could have failed to grasp the point, but if it really needs amplification, I shall consent to see you at the hour named, though visits and visitors of every sort are exceedingly distasteful to me. Well, way pre-quarantine, 1912. <laughs> but good call. Uh, as to your suggestion that I may modify my opinion, I would have you know that it is not my habit to do so after a deliberate expression of my mature views. You will kindly show the envelope of this letter to my man, Austin, when you call, as he has to take every precaution to shield me from the intrusive rascals who call themselves journalists. Yours faithfully, George Edward Challenger. It is worth noting at this moment that the narrator of the novel is in fact a journalist. This was the letter that I read aloud to Tarp Henry, who had come down early to hear the result of my venture. His only remark was, there's some new stuff, cuticura or something, which is better than arnica. Cuticura? What is it used for? Oh, it's uh, something for pain itching and relief. It's a soap. Whatever it is, uh, it's plot re relevant. Uh, so I'm going to do arnica as well in case.
Oh, mountain arnica. It's uh, wolfsbane, leopardsbane, mountain tobacco, and mountain arnica is a moderately toxic ethnobotanical European flowering plant in the sunflower family. It is noted for its large yellow flower head. So you can keep an eye out. Also, Google uh, uh the people also ask includes does arnica thin the blood and the answer from poison.org is that the reassuring answer excuse me the whistle i need to i know in recording just you hear things in your voice differently no one really knows how arnica works because of its ability to prevent clots from forming, arnica should not be taken with other medications or herbal products that can thin the blood, like aspirin, clopidogrel, warfarin, enoxaparin, uh, pixaban, dabigatran, rivar with an A, rivar, oxaban, ginger, garlic, or ginseng, to name a few. So now we know. And apparently cuticura is better than arnica. Some people have such extraordinary notions of humor. Without uh, you, oddly, because English writer. Uh, it was nearly half past ten before I had received my message, but a taxi cab took me round in good time for my appointment. It was an imposing, porticoed house at which we stopped, and the heavily curtained windows gave every indication of wealth upon the part of this formidable professor. The door was opened by an odd, swarthy, dried-up person of uncertain age with a dark pilot jacket and brown leather gaiters. I found out afterward that he was the chauffeur who filled the gaps left by a succession of fugitive butlers. He looked me up and down with a searching light blue eye. Expected, he asked, an appointment. Got your letter? I produced the envelope. Right. He seemed to be a person of few words. Following him down the passage, I was suddenly interrupted by a small woman who stepped out from what proved to be the dining room door. She was a bright, vivacious, dark-eyed lady, more French than English in her type. One moment, she said. You can wait, Austin. Step in here, sir. May I ask if you have met my husband before? No, madam, I have not had the honor. Then I apologize to you in advance. I must tell you that he is a perfectly impossible person, absolutely impossible. If you're forewarned, and you will be the more ready to make allowances. That is most considerate of you, madam. Get quickly out of the room if he seems inclined to be violent. Don't wait to argue with him. Several people have been injured through doing that. Afterwards, there is a public scandal, and it reflects upon me and all of us. I suppose it wasn't about South America you wanted to see him? I could not lie to a lady. Dear me, that is his most dangerous subject. You won't believe a word he says. I'm sure I don't wonder. 
but don't tell him so, for it makes him very violent. Pretend to believe him, and you may get through all right. Remember, he believes it himself. Of that you may be assured. A more honest man never lived. Don't wait any longer, or he might suspect. If you find him dangerous, really dangerous, ring the bell and hold him off until I come. Even at his worst, I can usually control him. With these encouraging words, the lady handed me over to the taciturn Austin, who had waited like a bronze statue of discretion during our short interview, and I was conducted to the end of the passage. There was a tap at a door, a bull's bellow from within, and I was face to face with the professor. He sat in a rotating chair behind a broad table which was covered with books, maps, and diagrams. As I entered, his seat spun round to face me. His appearance made me gasp. I was prepared for something strange, but not for so overpowering a personality as this. It was his size which took one's breath away, his size and his imposing presence. His head was enormous, the largest I have ever seen upon a human being. I am sure that his top hat, had I ever ventured to don it, would have slipped over me entirely and rested on my shoulders. He had the face and beard which I associate with an Assyrian bull, the former florid, the latter so black as almost to have a suspicion of blue, spade-shaped and rippling down over his chest. The hair was peculiar, plastered down in front of a long curving wisp over his massive forehead. The eyes were blue-gray under great black tufts, very clear, very critical, and very masterful. A huge spread of blah. a huge spread of shoulders and a chest like a barrel were the other parts of him which appeared above the table, save for two enormous hands covered with long black hair. This and a bellowing, roaring, rumbling voice made up my first impression of the notorious Professor Challenger. Well, said he, with a most insolent stare, what now? I must keep... This guy is just a gift to audiobooking. <laughs> I must keep up my deception for at least a little longer. Otherwise, here was evidently an end of the interview. You were good enough to give me an appointment, sir, uh, said I, humbly, producing his envelope. He took my letter from his desk and laid it out before him. Oh, you are the young person who cannot understand plain English, are you? My general conclusions you are good enough to approve, as I understand. Entirely, sir, entirely. I was very emphatic. Dear me, that strengthens my position very much, does it not? Your age and appearance make you your support doubly valuable. Well, at least you're better than that herd of swine in Vienna, whose gre gregarious grunt is, who, however, not more offensive than the isolated effort of the British hog. He glared at me as the present representative of the beast. They seem to have behaved abominably, said I. 
I assure you that I can fight my own battles, and that I have no possible need of your sympathy. Put me alone, sir, with my back to the wall. G.E.C. is happiest, then. Well, sir, let us do what we can to curtail this visit, which can hardly be agreeable to you, and is inexpressibly irksome to me. You had, as I have been led to believe, some comments to make upon the proposition which I advanced in my thesis. There was a brutal directness about his methods, which made evasion difficult. I must still play and wait for a better opening. It had seemed simple at a distance. Oh, my Irish wits. Yeah, boilerplate statement. Oh, my Irish wits, could they not help me now when I needed help so sorely? He transfixed me with two sharp, steely eyes. Come, come, he rumbled. I am, of course, a mere student, said I with a fatuous smile. Hardly more, I might say, than an earnest inquirer. At the same time, it seemed to me that you were a little severe upon Weissman in this matter. Has not the general evidence since that date tended to, well, to strengthen his position? What evidence? He spoke with a menacing calm. Well, of course, I'm aware that there is not any, what you might call, definite evidence. I alluded merely to the trend of modern thought and the general scientific point of view, if I might so express it. He leaned forward with great earnestness. I suppose you are aware, said he, checking off points on his fingers, upon his fingers, that the cranial index is a constant factor. Naturally, said I, and that telegony is still subjudice, telegony, here comes some Googling, is a theory of heredity holding that offspring can inherit the characteristics of a previous mate of the female parent. Thus, the child of a woman might partake of traits of a previous sexual partner. That feels like it was put forward a while ago. Telegony, T-E-L-E-G-O-N-Y, 1912. Uh, Subjudice. Telegony is still under judicial consideration. Whistles. Blah under judicial consideration and therefore prohibited from public discussion elsewhere. Well, that's actually a very useful thing to have Googled. So at the very least, thank you, future Adam, listening over this thing, if nobody else is. Uh, <laughs> um, and the telegony is still subjudice. Uh, Judice, undoubtedly, and that the germ plasm is different than the parthenogenic egg. Why, surely, I cried, and gloried in my own audacity. But what does that prove? he asked, in a gentle, persuasive voice. Ah, what indeed, I murmured. What does it prove? Shall I tell you? he cooed. Pray do. It proves that you're the damnedest imposter in London, a vile, crawling journalist who has no more science than he has decency in his composition. 
He had sprung to his feet with a mad rage in his eyes. And because we're getting toward the end of the tape and I do not want to do a break after this, that was the joke that uh, is the reason that I recorded this. So that is done. (laughs) Apologies for the shock, but my God, Conan Doyle. Uh, See you on the other side of the sound effect or transition thing. All right. When I was doing the Conan Doyle horror story, the horror of the heights uh, horror that uh, it lost a segment that I tried to record three times until I tried doing it by phone. So I'm happy that this was, I can keep going with the challenger energy and not be recording this part that you'll be hearing immediately next a few days later or whatever. Uh, Although it would be fun to read that joke again. I'm going to keep going uh, though. Uh, If it saves this audio and before I go back to it, apologies for, I realized that uh, while this is actually fun in what for me, uh, from the games I play with myself is a post-seizuristic thing that is just very apparent in to me in some parts of the way that I'm doing this podcasting and getting stuff out of it. The disjointment, this sense of uh, having gone over this earth before, but uh, being back without context and for myself, uh, general memory of the book, which I very memorably read actually overnight uh, on a inflatable mattress uh, in Golders Green, London, and a very memorable uh, start to an adventure, uh, which was mine at that time. Right now, we're here for Professor Challenger. So back to it. A vile, crawling journalist who has no more science than he has decency in his composition. He had sprung to his feet with a mad rage in his eyes. Even at that moment of tension, I found time for amazement at the discovery that he was quite a short man, his head not higher than my shoulder, a stunted Hercules whose tremendous vitality had all run to depth, depth, breadth, and brain. Gibberish, he cried leaning forward with his fingers on the table and his face projecting. That's what I've been talking to you, sir. Scientific gibberish. Did you think you could match cunning with me? You, with your walnut of a brain? You think you're omnipotent, you infernal scribblers, don't you? That your praise can make a man and your blame can break him? We must all bow to you and try to get a favorable word, must we? 
This man shall have a leg up, and this man shall have a dressing down. Creeping vermin, I know you. You've got out of your station. Time was when your ears were clipped. You've lost your sense of proportion. Swollen gas bags, I'll keep you in your proper place. Yes, sir, you haven't got over GEC. There's one man who is still your master. He warned you off, but if you will come, by the Lord, you will do it at your own risk. Forfeit, my good Mr. Malone. I claim forfeit. You have played a rather dangerous game, and it strikes me that you have lost it. (laughs) I think it's debatable which of these two of you have lost it, but sure. And that's not the kind of lost of this lost world, but... Look here, sir, said I, backing to the door and opening it. You can be as abusive as you like, but there is a limit. You shall not assault me. Shall I not? He was slowly advancing in a peculiar, peculiarly menacing way, but he stopped now and put his big hands into the side pockets of a rather boyish short jacket which he wore. I've thrown several of you out of the house. You'll be the fourth or fifth. Three pounds fifteen each. That's how it averaged. Expensive, but very necessary. Now, sir, why should you not follow your brethren? I rather think you must. He resumed his unpleasant and stealthy advance, pointing his toes as he walked, like a dancing master. I could have bolted for the hall door, but it would have been too ignominious. Besides... A little glow of righteous anger was springing up within me. I had been hopelessly in the wrong before, but this man's menaces were putting me in the right. I'll trouble you to keep your hands off, sir. I'll not stand it. Dear me. His black mustache lifted and a white fang twinkled in a sneer. You won't stand it, eh? Don't be such a fool, professor, I cried. What can you hope for? I'm 15 stone, as hard as nails, and play center three-quarter every Saturday for the London Irish. I'm not the man. It was at that moment that he rushed me. It was lucky that I had opened the door, or we should have gone through it. We did a Catherine wheel together down the passage. Somehow we gathered up a chair upon our way and bounded on with it toward the street. My mouth was full of his beard, our arms were locked, our bodies intertwined, and that infernal chair radiated its legs all round us like a fucking cartoon. Ah. Doyle. The watchful Austin had thrown open the hall door. We went with a back somersault down the front steps and both broke their necks. I have seen the two Macs attempt something of this kind at the halls. That's got to be some kind of uh, acrobatic thing in the, like, vaudeville halls or something. But it appears to take some practice with a S, practice with an S, uh, to do it without hurting oneself. The chair went to matchwood at the bottom, and we rolled apart into the gutter. He sprang to his feet, waving his fists and wheezing like an asthmatic. Had enough, he panted. You infernal bully, I cried as I gathered myself together. (laughs) Then and there we should have tried the thing out, for he was effervescing with fight, 
but fortunately I was rescued from an odious situation. A policeman was beside us, his notebook in his hand. What's all this? You ought to be ashamed, said the policeman. It was the most rational remark which I had heard in Enmore Park. Well, he insisted, turning to me, what is it then? This man attacked me, said I. Did you attack him? asked the policeman. The professor breathed hard and said nothing. It's not the first it's not the first time either, said the policeman severely, shaking his head. You were in trouble last month for the same thing. You've blackened this young man's eye. Do you give him in charge, sir? I relented. No, said I, I do not. What's that, said the... I'm not sure where to put the emphases there because of the idiom. Hang on a sec. No, I do not. Uh, what's that, said the policeman. I was to blame myself. I intruded upon him. He gave me fair warning. The policeman snapped up his notebook. Don't let us have any more such goings-on, said he. Now then, move on there, move on. This to a butcher's boy, a maid and one or two loafers who had collected. Uh, loafers being like a person, not the shoe. Uh, who had collected. He clumped heavily down the street, driving this little flock before him. The professor looked at me, and there was something humorous at the back of his eyes. Come in, he said. I've not done with you yet. The speech had a sinister sound, but I followed him nonetheless into the house. The manservant, Austin, like a wooden image, closed the door behind us. And because, although that is the end of the chapter, I am not consigned to any limit by anchor or by anything. It's 9.17 p.m. on Saturday, April 18th. Uh, and this is amusing me and I hope amusing whoever, whenever you are. And hope this finds you safe and healthy. Uh, but I'm going to keep going because I'm having fun. You can listen or not or go over to the uh, essay and pick up the link to do this page turner for your very own self. But I'm going to go on to chapter four. It's just the very biggest thing in the world, is the title, in quotes. Hardly was it shut when Mrs. Challenger darted out from the dining room. Oh, I'm glad I read on. <laughs> Already. I, I can't get her voice right, but I hear the way it should sound. <laughs> the small woman was in a furious temper. She barred her husband's way like an enraged chicken in front of a bulldog. It was evident that she had seen my exit, but had not observed my return. You brute, George, she screamed. You've hurt that nice young man. He jerked backward with his thumb. Here he is, safe and sound behind me. She was confused, but not unduly so. I am so sorry I didn't see you. 
I assure you, madam, that it is all right. He's marked your poor face. Oh, George, what a brute you are. Nothing but scandals from one end of the week to the other. Everyone hating and making fun of you. You've all the people hating. They're just haters. And making fun of you. You've finished my patience. This ends it. Dirty linen, he rumbled. It's not a secret, she cried. Do you suppose that the whole street, the whole of London, for that matter? Get away, Austin. We don't want you here. Do you suppose they don't all talk about you? Where's your dignity? You, a man who should have been should have been Regis Professor at a great university with uh, capitals on three of those words, uh, with a thousand students all revering you. Where is your dignity, George? How about yours, my dear? You try me too much. A ruffian, a common brawling ruffian. That's what you've become. Be good, be good, Jesse. A roaring, raging bully. That's done it. Stool of penance said he. To my amazement, he stooped, picked her up, and placed her sitting upon a high pedestal of black marble in the angle of the hall. It was at least seven feet high, and so thin that she could hardly... Oh, God! (laughs) And so thin that she could hardly balance upon it. A more absurd object then she presented, cocked up there with her face convulsed with anger, her feet dangling, and her body rigid for fear of an upset I could not imagine. Let me down, she wailed. Say, please. You brute, George, let me down this instant. Come into the study, Mr. Malone. Really, sir, said I, looking at the lady. Uh, And there's an interesting bit of punctuation there. Uh, if you care to read it on paper or Kindle. Here's Mr. Malone pleading for you, Jesse. Say please, and down you come. Oh, you brute. Please, please. He took her down as if she had been a canary. You must behave yourself, dear. Mr. Malone is a, with capital P, pressman, as in newspaper man. He will have it all in his rag tomorrow and sell an extra dozen among our neighbors. Strange story of high life. You felt fairly high on that pedestal, did you not? Then a subtitle, Glimpse of a Singular Menage, which in this context meaning the members of a household. And people know... uh, the phrase menage a trois, uh, but the actual word in a single sense is uh, crisis had recently unsettled the Cleland menage, like the family Cleland, I guess. They were forced to conduct their menage on a humbler scale than heretofore. Cool. Uh... Although I don't know if the word menage would work in a headline except in France uh, or the year 1912. He's a foul feeder, a you kind of foul, not like the bird, like defaced or toxic. He's a foul feeder, is Mr. Malone, a carrion eater, like all of his kind, 
Porcus ex grege diaboli, a swine from the devil's herd. That's it, Malone. What? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly because of punctu- punctuation, but it's emphatic. Uh, I'm not sure if he's questioning him or if that's the English, like, uh, what, what? Uh, but so, <laughs> you are really intolerable, said I hotly. He bellowed with laughter. Ha 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 ha. Ho ho. Hee hee. No, no hee hees for Professor Challenger. Just uh, hose. Black dynamite. <laughs> Such a damn good. <laughs> so, so weird and perfect. Uh, yeah. Um, what is it? Uh, I didn't watch certain cartoons as a kid, you know, like we didn't really do TV as much or I didn't pursue it, whatever. But, uh, it's set in the seventies and it's like the style of Johnny Quest or, uh, you know, Venture Brothers is a, uh, earlier similar vein of a similar thing, but he keeps running into like celebrities of the seventies, like, with uh oj simpson and the episode where they go to the moon like weird fucking show excellent strange show but him just going like you're so likable oj simpson they just say this like 12 times with all the guests uh and we're in professor challenger's house so uh ho 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 we shall have a coalition presently, he boomed, looking from his wife to me and puffing out his enormous chest. Then, suddenly altering his tone, excuse this frivolous family badinage. God. Badinage, B-A-D-I-N-A-G-E. Humorous or witty conversation, repartee or banter. Uh... Excuse this frivolous family banter, Mr. Malone. I called you back for some more serious purpose than to mix you up with our little domestic pleasantries. Run away, little woman, and don't fret. Boilerplate. He placed a huge hand upon each of her shoulders. All that you say is perfectly true. I should be a better man if I did what you advise, but I shouldn't be quite George Edward Challenger. There are plenty of better men, my dear, but only one G.E.C., so make the best of him. He suddenly gave her a resounding kiss, which embarrassed me even more than his violence had done. Now, Mr. Malone, he continued with a great accession of dignity, this way, if you please. We re-entered the room which we had left so tumultuously ten minutes before. Run, dude. Run. The professor closed the door carefully behind us, motioned me into an armchair, and pushed a cigar box under my nose. Real San, Qua- San Juan, Colorado, he said. Excitable people like you are the better for narcotics. Very, Sherlock Holmes. Heavens, don't bite it. Cut, and cut with reverence. Now lean back and listen attentively to whatever I may care to say to you. 
If any remark should occur to you, you can reserve it for some more opportune time. God, he is just the greatest overbearing. Like, there's someone I'm not going to name, but but there's someone that comes to mind of, like, one of the most brilliant, most arrogant people I've ever met in my life. Like, fascinating person, but... Uh, <laughs> but... Professor Challenger is a cartoon, but there, if you haven't encountered them, the world is full of a lot of extreme personalities. Uh, and, you know, there are plenty of better men, but only one GEC. Ah, uh, cigars. Oh, uh, shut up. More opportune times. First of all, as to your return to my house after your most justifiable expulsion, he protruded his beard and stared at me as one who challenges and invites contradiction. After, as I say, your well-merited expulsion, the reason lay in your answer to that most officious policeman in, what I see, in which I seem to discern some glimmering of good feeling upon your part. More, at any rate, that I'm accustomed to associate with your profession. In admitting that the fault of the incident lay with you, you gave some evidence of a certain mental detachment and breadth of view which attracted my favorable notice. The subspecies of the human race to which you unfortunately belong has always been below my mental horizon. Your words brought you suddenly above it. You swam up into my serious notice. For this reason, I asked you to return with me, as I was minded to make your further acquaintance. You will kindly deposit your ash on the small Japanese tray on the bamboo table which stands at your left elbow. All this he boomed forth like a professor addressing his class. He had swung round his revolving chair so as to face me, and he sat all puffed out like an enormous bullfrog, his head laid back and his eyes half-covered by supercilious lids. Now he suddenly turned himself sideways, and all I could see of him was tangled hair with a red, protruding ear. He was scratching about among the litter of papers upon his desk. He faced me presently with what looked like a very tattered sketchbook in his hand. Uh... I'm going to talk to you about South America, said he. No comments, if you please. First of all, I wish you to understand that nothing I tell you now is to be repeated in any public way unless you have my express permission. That permission will, in all human probability, never be given. Is that clear? It is very hard, said I. Surely a judicious account. He replaced the notebook upon the table. That ends it, said he. I wish you a very good morning. And now we have a few minutes still on this side of the disc. 22 minutes. Um, I know that makes as much sense as saying, you know, rewind that DVD. But... Um, It's a, uh, uh, it's some kind of idiom until somebody 
corrects me on reach out Twitter at time of posting if you know what I'm talking about and it's otherwise than an idiom. Uh, that ends it, said he. I wish you a very good morning. No, no, I cried. I submit to any conditions. So far as I can see, I have no choice. None in the world. Well then, I promise. Word of honor. Word of honor. He looked at me with doubt in his insolent eyes. After all, what do I know about your honor? said he. Upon my word, sir, I cried angrily, you take very great liberties. I have never been so insulted in my life. He seemed more interested than annoyed at my outbreak. Round-headed, he muttered. Brachiocephalic. Uh, oh, and I see at the end of the sentence we're coming up to uh, the basic boilerplate, the reason for that statement earlier. But brachiocephalic is a, uh, like, uh, what do you call them? Calipers, the measuring people's size and stuff of their skull, phrenology. Uh, brachiocephalic is having a relatively broad, short skull, usually with the breadth at least 80% of the length. Um, and of all things, the Discworld book, uh, Nightwatch, uh, just came into my head. Of the that, I think is my favorite all time uh, of the series, um, and just brilliant, brilliant book. Two thousand two, yeah. Anyway, but so uh, boilerplate coming up as I'm just gonna shorthand that. Brachiocephalic, gray-eyed, black-haired with suggestion of the negroid. Celtic, I presume. I am an Irishman, sir. Irish-Irish? Yes, sir. That, of course, explains it. Let me see. You have given me your promise that my confidence will be respected. That confidence, I may say. And I just... It's always some damn thing. Thing to thing, stuff just appearing to me. Um, later. Um, confidence will be respected, question mark. That confidence, I may say, will be far from complete, but I am prepared to give you a few indications which will be of interest. In the first place, you're probably aware that two, day, two years ago I made a journey to South America one which will be classical in the scientific history of the world, question mark. The object of my journey was to verify some conclusions of Wallace and of Bates, which could only be done by observing their reported facts under the same conditions in which they had themselves noted them. If my expedition had no other results, it would still have been noteworthy, but a curious incident occurred to me while there, which opened up an entirely fresh line of inquiry. And it, coming up on 27 minutes, we will hop over to that line of inquiry on the next bet. I might, uh, I might just do the whole novel. It's an absolute gift that all of this is public domain. And on that particular note, 
Uh, if you want to follow along being intrigued by the beginning, uh, you can do that. I'm not going to go back right now to read the beginning because it was just too much fun to go from there. Uh, but it's on Project Gutenberg. It'll be linked to this thing. And if you want to know exactly what about Professor Challenger and the theory he put forward, he's about to kind of get into it uh, about the lost world. But if you want to read the entire excellent novel, you can do that there. It is 9.35 p.m., still the 18th of April. And sound effect. It is 9.43 and of the 18th, uh, um, I just had to go back uh, 14 minutes, 40 seconds uh, into that episode of Black Dynamite, uh, which is, yes, linked along with The Lost World because... Whether or not, probably not, they think they're, you know, ripping off King Kong. But I feel like, uh, I mean, note Future Adam and other people, uh, Twitter, if you want to discuss or clarify, uh, there was a silent version of The Lost World at some point that among regrets of my life. Uh, There was another thing I was happy to be going to. There was a friend's music thing, but I was at the Maryland Film Festival and they were doing a uh, uh, live full theater thing of the silent movie with a live orchestra. And that is one of those things that now... I just, we, we got to think on because I've been to a few silent films with live uh, music uh, and I hope that at some point we can get back to the point where everyone, uh, we can do that. But I wonder how closely that version of The Lost World and King Kong were, I think King Kong, the original was 1933, but just the adventure movies of that type of that time. Uh, Coming from Professor Challenger and others. If my, oh, entirely fresh line of inquiry. You are aware, or probably in this half-educated age, you're not aware that the country around some parts of the Amazon is still only partially explored, and that a great number of tributaries, some of them entirely uncharted, run into the main river. It was my business to visit this little-known backcountry and to examine its fauna, which furnished me with the materials for several chapters for that great and monumental work upon zoology, which will be my life's justification. I was returning, 
my work accomplished, when I had occasion to spend a night at a small Indian village at a point where a certain tributary, the name and position of which I withhold, opens into the main river. The natives were Kukama Indians, uh, and I'm going to Google it, and then we have a straightforward boilerplate. <laughs> Cover your ears, kids. Uh, oh, interesting. The first couple things that pop up are Lost Worlds. Uh, and what is... Maybe he made it up. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that one <clears throat> might not fly today. Just interesting of note. That sounds uh, scholarly, but as a matter of fact, that's the same trap that he put the journalist in. Those apparently are not, there aren't, unless anyone wants to correct, C-U-C-A-M-A, Indian, South America, Amazon, and it, boilerplate, the natives were Kukama Indians, an amiable but degraded race, with mental powers hardly superior to the average Londoner. I had effected some cures upon them in my way up the river, and had impressed them considerably with my personality, so that I was not surprised to find myself eagerly awaited upon my return. I gathered from their signs that someone had urgent need of my medical services, and I followed the chief to one of his huts. When I entered, I found that the sufferer, to whose age I had summoned, had that instant expired. He was, to my surprise, no Indian, but uh, a white man, gasp. Indeed, I may say a very white man, for he was flaxen-haired and had some characteristics of an albino. He was clad in rags, was very emaciated, and bore every trace of prolonged hardship. So far as I could understand the account of the natives, he was a complete stranger to them, and had come upon their village through the woods alone and in the last stage of exhaustion. The man's knapsack lay beside the couch, and I examined the contents. His name was written upon a tab within it, Maple White, Lake Avenue, Detroit, Michigan. It is a name to which I am prepared always to lift my hat. It is not too much to say that it will rank level with my own when the final credit of this business comes to be apportioned. Note to check out later whether Maple White is ever mentioned again in this novel. Uh, Lake Avenue, Detroit, Michigan, possibly a made-up street. It sounds plausible, but, uh, yeah. Actually, no, you know what? That has to be, that's just lazy. Lake Michigan, just Lake Avenue. It probably exists. It is a name to which I am, oh, yeah, yeah. From the contents of the knapsack, it was evident that this man had been an artist and poet in search of effects. There were scraps of verse. I do not profess to be a judge of such things, but they appeared to be to me to be singularly wanting in merit, which uh, wanting like uh, wanting for bread, wanting but not having. It means I'm not a 
uh, critic, but uh, he criticizes them. Uh, there were also some rather commonplace pictures of river scenery, a paint box, a box of colored chalks, some brushes, that curved bone which lies upon my inkstand, a volume of Baxter's Moths and Butterflies, a cheap revolver, and a few cartridges. Of personal equipment, he either had none or he had lost it in his journey. Such were the total effects of this strange American bohemian. I was turning away from him when I observed that something projected from the front of his ragged jacket. It was this sketchbook, which was as dilapidated then as you see it now. Indeed, I can assure you... Apologies, whistle. Uh, Indeed, I can assure you that a first folio of Shakespeare could not be treated with greater reverence than this relic has been since it came into my possession. I hand it to you now, and I ask you to take it page by page and examine the contents. He helped himself to a cigar and leaned back with a fiercely critical pair of eyes, taking note of the effect which this document would produce. I had opened the volume with some expectation of a revelation, though of what nature I could not imagine. The first page was disappointing, however, as it contained nothing but the picture of a very fat man in a pea jacket with the legend Jimmy Culver on the mailboat written beneath it. There followed several pages which were filled in with small sketches of Indians and their ways. Then came a picture of a cheerful and corpulent ecclesiastic in a shovel hat sitting opposite a very thin European and the inscription, Lunch with Fra Christophera at Rosario. Studies of women and babies accounted for several more pages, and then there were an unbroken series of animal drawings with such explanations as manatee upon sandbank, Turtles and their eggs, black ajouti under a mirati palm, the matter disclosing some sort of pig-like animal, uh, and finally came to a double page of studies of long-snouted and very unpleasant saurians, S-A-U-R-I-A-N-S, plural. I could, na- I could make nothing of it and said so to the professor, Surely those are only crocodiles. Alligators, alligators. There's hardly such a thing as a true crocodile in South America. The distinction between them. I I meant that I can see nothing unusual, nothing to justify what you've said. He smiled serenely. Try the next page, said he. I was still unable to sympathize. It was, okay, that's being used in a, archaic way. It was a full-page sketch of a landscape roughly tinted in color, the kind of painting which an open-air artist takes as a guide to a future, more elaborate effort. There was a pale green foreground of feathery vegetation, which sloped upward and ended in a line of cliffs, dark red in color and curiously ribbed, like some basaltic formation, oh, like basalt, the rock, 
basaltic formations which I have seen, they extended in an unbroken wall right across the background. At one point was an isolated pyramidal rock crowned by a great tree which appeared to be separated by a cleft from the main crag. Behind it all, a blue tropical sky, a thin green line of vegetation fringed the summit of the ruddy cliff. Well, he asked, it is no doubt a curious formation, said I, but I am not geologist enough to say that it's wonderful. Wonderful, he repeated. It is unique. It's incredible. No one on earth has ever dreamed of such a possibility. Now the next. I turned it over and gave an exclamation of surprise. There was a full-page picture of the most extraordinary creature that I had ever seen. It was the wild dream of an opium smoker, a vision of delirium. The head was like that of a fowl, this time like a bird with a W. The body, that of a bloated lizard. The trailing tail was furnished with upward-turned spikes, the, uh, the thagomizers. Uh, is the technical term, uh, named after the late Thag Simmons. Look it up. And the curved back was edged with a high serrated fringe, which looked like a dozen cocks, waddles placed behind each other. In front of this creature was an absurd mannequin, spelled weirdly, uh, not breaking for that or absurd mannequin or dwarf in human form which who stood staring at it. Well, what do you think of that? cried the professor, rubbing his hands with an air of triumph. It is monstrous, grotesque. But what made him draw such an animal? Trade gin, I should think. Oh, that's the best explanation you can give, is it? Well, sir, what is yours? The obvious one is that the creature exists, that it is actually sketched from the life. I should have laughed, only that I had a vision of our doing another Catherine wheel down the passage. No doubt, said I, no doubt, as one humors an imbecile. I confess, however, that uh, this tiny human figure puzzles me. If it were an Indian, we could set it down as in evidence of some pygmy race in America, but it seems it appears to be a European and a, a European in a sun hat. The professor snorted like an angry buffalo. <clears throat> you really touch the limit. You enlarge my view of the possible. Cerebral paresis, mental inertia, wonderful. He was too absurd to make me angry. Indeed, it was a waste of energy, for if you were going to be angry with this man, you would be angry all the time. I contented myself with smiling wearily. It struck me that the man was small, said I. Look here, he cried, leaning forward and dabbing a great hairy sausage of a finger on the picture. You see that plant behind the animal? I suppose you thought it was a dandelion or a Brussels sprout. What? Well, it is a vegetable ivory palm, and they run to about 50 or 60 feet. Don't you see that the man is put in for a purpose? He couldn't really have stood in front of that brute and lived to draw it. He sketched himself in to give a scale of heights. He was, 
we will say, over five feet high. The tree is ten times bigger, which is what one would expect. Good heavens, I cried. Then you think the beast was... Why, Charing Cross Station would hardly make a kennel for such a brute. Apart from exaggeration, he is certainly a well-grown specimen, said the professor, complacently. But, I cried, surely the whole experience of the human race is not to be set aside on account of a single sketch. I had turned over the leaves and ascertained that there was nothing more in the book. A single sketch by a wandering American artist who may have done it under hashish or in the delirium of fever or simply in order to gratify a freakish imagination. You can't, as a man of science, defend such a position as that. For answer, the professor took down a book from a shelf. This is an excellent monograph by my gifted friend Ray Lancaster, said he. There is an illustration here which will interest you. Ah, yes, here it is. The inscription beneath it runs, Probable appearance in life of the Jurassic dinosaur Stegosaurus. The hind leg alone is twice as tall as a full-grown man. Well, what do you make of that? He handed me the open book. I stared as I looked at the picture. In this reconstructed animal of a dead world, there was certainly a very great resemblance to the sketch of the unknown artist. That is certainly remarkable, said I. But you won't admit that it is final. Surely it might be a coincidence, or this American may have seen a picture of the kind and carried it in his memory. It would be likely to recur to a man in a delirium. Very good, said the professor indulgently. We leave it at that. I will now ask you to look at this bone. He handed over the one which he had already described as part of the dead man's possessions. It was about six inches long and thicker than my thumb, with some indications of dried cartilage at one end. To what known creature does that bone belong? asked the professor. I examined it with care and tried to recall some half-forgotten knowledge. It might be a very thick human collarbone, I said. My companion waved his hand in contemptuous deprecation. Oh, this is a Sherlock Holmesian uh, uh, <laughs> beatdown. The human collarbone is curved. This is straight. There's a groove upon its surface showing the great tendon plate across it, which could not be the case with a clavicle. Then I must confess that I don't know what it is. You need not be ashamed to expose your ignorance, for I don't suppose the whole Kensington staff could give a name to it. He took a little bone the size of a bean out of a pillbox. So far as I am a judge, this human bone is the analog of the one which you hold in your hand. That will give you some idea of the size of the creature. You will observe from the cartilage that this is no fossil specimen, but recent. What do you say to that? Surely in an elephant, he winced as in pain. Don't, don't talk of elephants in South America, even in these days of board schools. Well, I interrupted, any large South American animal, a taper, for instance. You may take it, young man, that I am versed in the elements of my business. This is not a conceivable bone, either of a taper or of any other creature known to zoology. 
It belongs to a very large, a very strong, and, by all analogy, a very fierce animal which exists upon the face of the earth, but has not yet come under the notice of science. You are still unconvinced. I am at least deeply interested. Then your case is not hopeless. I feel there's reason in lurking in you. There is reason lurking in you somewhere. And just, sorry, seeing if the, okay. Um, lurking in you somewhere. So we will patiently grope round for it. We will now leave the dead American and proceed with my narrative. You can imagine that I could hardly come away from the Amazon without probing deeper into the matter. There were indications as to the direction from which the dead traveler had come. Indian legends would alone have been my guide, for I found that rumors of a strange land were common among all the riverine tribes. You have heard, no doubt, of Kurupuri? Come on, Google. Oh, hey, this one's real. Uh, it's mythological, but it's not made up uh, by Doyle. Uh, Kurupira uh, is a mythological creature of Brazilian folklore. Uh, this creature blends many features of West African and European fairies, but was usually regarded as a demonic figure. Uh, and um, just the etymology uh, is, and there's a illustration uh, from some pervy artist in 1926 of Kurapura watching a girl sleep. Uh, Manuel Santiago. Uh, but the name comes from the Tupi. Apologies if that's... Uh, uh, mispronounce the Tupi or Tupi language Kurupir, meaning covered in blisters. Uh, wait a minute, this might actually be important to the... Oh, okay, interesting. He's about to give a little description, but uh, a little more of the Wikipedia uh, says... Ah, uh, that's cute. Huh. All right. Um, okay, Pora. Um, oh, interesting. So, uh, according to the cultural legends, this creature has bright red slash orange hair uh, and resembles a man or a dwarf, but its feet are turned backwards. Kurupira lives in the forests of Brazil and uses its backward feet to create footprints that lead to its starting point, thus making hunters and travelers confused. Besides that, it can also create illusions and produce a sound that's like a high-pitched whistle in order to scare and drive its victims to madness. It is common to portray a Kurupira riding a collared picari, which is a species of mammal, something, something. Looks like a, it says muskog. It, uh, um, collared picari, much like another Brazilian creature 
called Kaipura, which uh, means inhabitant of the forest and is another uh, Brazilian folklore uh, creature. Um, But so in The Lost World, he asks, uh, you've heard of the Kurupuri? Never. Kurupuri is the spirit of the woods, something terrible, something malevolent something to be avoided. None can describe its shape or nature, but it is a word of terror along the Amazon. Now all tribes agree as to the direction in which Kurapuri lives. It was the same direction from which the American had come. Something terrible lay that way. It was my business to find out what it was. What did you do? My flippancy was all gone. This massive man compelled one's attention and respect. I overcame the extreme reluctance of the natives, uh, a reluctance which extends even to talk upon the subject, and by judicious persuasion and gifts, aided, I will admit, by some threats of coercion, I got two of them to act as guides. After many adventures, which I need not describe, and after traveling a distance, which I will not mention, in a direction which I withhold, we came at last to a tract of country which has never been described, nor indeed visited, save by my unfortunate predecessor. Would you kindly look at this? He handed me a photograph, half-plate size. The unsatisfactory appearance of it is due to the fact, said he, that on descending the river, the boat was upset, and the case which contained the undeveloped films was broken with disastrous results. Nearly all of them were totally ruined and irreparable loss. This is one of the few which partially escaped. This explanation of deficiencies or abnormalities you will kindly accept. There was talk of faking. I'm not in a mood to argue such a point. And I think that's probably in chapter one or two, something like this is alluded to. And as I just read, The Horror of the Heights, one of Conan Doyle's uh, horror stories, uh, this is a far more convincing uh, instance of something that I talk about at the end of reading that story, uh, because this one uh makes sense and is done with some finesse and i believe was written uh, a few years after that other story which also is uh an explorer's exploring story ah son of a bitch um talk of faking the photograph was certainly very off colored <laughs> Uh, an unkind critic might easily have misinterpreted that dim surface. It was a dull gray landscape, and as I gradually deciphered the details of it, I realized that it represented a long and enormously high line of cliffs, exactly like an immense cataract seen in the distance, with a sloping, tree-clad plain in the foreground. And... Coming near the end of the disc. So, also, because it's 10.10 p.m., 
but I was up till 4 a.m., you know, quarantine hours. Uh, I'm going to leave it at him saying, I believe it is the same place as the painted picture, said I. Uh, and the professor will go on to be uh, didactic about it. But for the sake of people listening and being curious but not seeing an episode that is marked as eight hours long of a full audiobook. I'm going to cut it off there for now. It's also a good point just for now. If you're interested enough to be listening, and I hope enjoying this, it's on Project Gutenberg. You can get it to your Kindle or otherwise. Uh, once again, although I've said it and it's in the title and all that, this is Arthur Conan Doyle. Not Jules Verne. Uh, and another time I can read something of Jules Verne because those are excellent as well. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, is an extraordinary and a book I loved as a kid. Uh, if you know the picture, you know the one I have in mind that uh, will haunt your nightmares. Um, in a time before internet when it was, uh, shocking, um, a lot of tentacles, but, uh, for real, uh, as they say on TV tropes, some nightmare fuel, but, uh, I'm going to cut it off there for now. Uh, I'm at the 29-minute mark. It is 10.12 p.m., day one month after the start of quarantine. I hope that you are well and safely quarantined and in good health. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at time of posting. And until next time, be well. Zygazunt.